This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back this week, guys. Thank you for joining us once again. And thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. Bethan's going to do the honours. Yeah, thank you so much to Emily Mann, Kirsty Phillip, Lindsay Broom, Joanne McIntyre, Kaylee Smith, Lindsay White, Lara Louise Payton and Ruth Turnbull. Thank you to each and every one of you. And of course, a huge thanks to our existing Patreon supporters as well. If you want to join these guys, if you sign up to our most popular tier on Patreon, then you gain access to Crime Wave, which is our fortnightly Patreon exclusive podcast in which we discuss topical true crime stories making the news. And these are our kind of 30 to 40 minute episodes, aren't they, Bethan? And it's um, a much more candid version of us, I would say, would you? Definitely. It's a little bit more relaxed. It's less structured, less scripted and just, um, yeah, a little bit more how we got into doing this in the first place. A, a quite fair representation of us two sat on our lunch breaks in the kitchen chatting. Um, and we, we really enjoy it, don't we? We do. And we have nearly two dozen episodes in our back catalogue of Crime Wave waiting for you to binge right now. We also release regular bonus episodes and there's a back catalogue of over 40 episodes waiting for you right now that haven't been released anywhere else. So episodes that see us take a deep dive into Jimmy Savile, The Suffolk Strangler, Danny Tetley, Soap Star, Gemma McCluskey, just to name a few. I forgot all about Danny Tetley that we covered that one, the guy from X Factor. Oh, that's Very actually a really episode. sad story as well. Yeah. Very sad, yeah. Very interesting. Downfall. We also have a book club, so we meet online every three months to discuss a different true crime book. And we've been really lucky in the past. We've been uh, joined by true crime author Colin Sutton twice uh, when we discussed his books, which were amazing. And we're meeting for our next one, which is all about the Golden State Killer. And that's in a couple of weeks time. Yeah, not long at all. We also have loads of competitions just at random. So that's always really good fun. And we also release ad and sponsor free episodes of Seeing Red early. Your support makes a massive difference to us and the show, and it means we can continue to invest in providing great content, and we can also keep the show going. Over a thousand of you have signed up to support us on Patreon since we started Seeing Red. There's no minimum term, so you can cancel your subscription at any time, and it only takes two minutes to sign up, and it does, as I said, it makes a huge difference to us. So all you need to do is head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. This week we're heading back across the pond as we prepare to take a deep dive into arguably one of the most terrifying cases of mass murder and domestic terrorism that ever occurred in the USA. 
The ruthless, evil perpetrators of this 2002 attack on American citizens were prevented from carrying out a far more destructive, murderous and terrifying master plan thanks to the hard work, diligence and determination of the American criminal investigators who fought tirelessly, day and night, to bring the killer's campaign of murder and violence to an end. And I'm really glad that we're covering this case um, this week and next week because It's one of those cases where until you start to do some research or you start to actually look at it in depth, it's it's just something you know the the title of or the name of or the overview. And there's so much more to this case and there's so much involved. So I'm really, really glad that we've got the chance to properly talk about this. Yeah, it's it really is an immersive case and that's why we've had to split it into two episodes because there is just so much. Our script for this is nearly 10,000 words long and as you know, we, we don't just stick rigidly to that. We ad-lib and discuss different points around it. So it really is a, a deep dive into this case. Washington DC, the United States of America's iconic capital city, is situated on the Potomac River, bordering the states of Maryland and Virginia. The city itself, however, is not part of any state. DC simply stands for District of Columbia, and its creation comes directly from the US Constitution, which provides that the district, not exceeding 10 miles square, would become the seat of the government of the United States. That's interesting. I didn't know that, that it was not part of an actual state or anything. It's just... It's its own little fiefdom. Its own place. Yeah. That's, That's pretty cool. DC is a historically rich city, which is primarily defined by its imposing neoclassical monuments and buildings, including the masterful structures that house the federal government's three main branches. So that's the Capitol, the Supreme Court, and of course the White House. It's also home to several famous museums and performing arts venues, such as the Kennedy Center. Crime rates in DC have always been middle shelf at worst. Whilst violent crime is common in the inner city area, its surrounding suburbs are relatively safe and affluent. For the most part, and of course within reason, you can freely walk the streets of Washington, DC and feel safe and at ease any time of the day or night. For the longest time, the residents of Washington, DC felt secure in their nation's capital. That was right up until September the 11th in 2001 when terrorists crashed a jet plane into the side of the Pentagon building, whilst also bringing down the Twin Towers in nearby New York and downing another passenger airliner in Pennsylvania. 3,000 innocent lives were lost that day in what was one of the most infamous and deadliest terror attacks the world has ever seen. And I just thought, I I don't think this is something we have ever discussed on the show, Bethan, but do you remember where you were that day? Because it's such a monumental day in history. Yeah, I do. I was at school and there was like rumours in the kind of playground and stuff. And um, I can't remember if they sent us all home early or whether or not we just went home at normal time. But I remember getting home and kind of being like, what is going on? Because there's loads of there's loads of discussions in the playground, loads of people talking about something has happened and then getting home and my mum kind of being like, this is what's happened, but I don't really want you watching the news. I don't want you watching all these things. And she kind of allowed me to ha- to see things because I was older. And But she said to me about my little sisters, like, basically, I don't want you to have the news on if your sisters are in the room. I remember my mum and dad just being very, very shocked. And how old was I there? Like 11? 
12 maybe. Um, so I didn't really have a huge awareness, but I remember being acutely aware that adults were very, very scared that something else was going to happen. I think that's kind of my main memory of that moment and just not knowing, not really, and not really appreciating the absolute gravity of the situation. And it was only when I read um, one of the firefighters books, I can't remember his name, his, well, I feel like his nickname was Pitch, but I can't, I don't know why that stuck in my head. But he wrote about his time fighting fires and trying to rescue people and basically being part of the recovery team. And that book then was kind of my first proper insight into what what had really gone on. How about you? Where were you when this happened? I I was 18 years old. Um, I was probably two weeks away from going away to university. And I remember for some reason, because I was sometimes off school when I should have been at school. I missed some injections that they would give in school. So I think, I can't remember what they were now. I think one was uh, meningitis. So I don't think I'd ever had the meningitis vaccine. I'd not had the polio vaccine, all the kind of normal stuff they'd give out in schools. I'd missed all of that. And before you go to university, you've got to have all of that stuff and prove it. So I was due to go to the doctors to have all of those things done. And I remember before I left for the doctors, it had happened because I was going to the doctors in the afternoon. I can't really remember exactly what I knew at that point, but I I knew it was bad. It was terrifying. I had to pull myself away from the TV set in order to kind of leave and go to the doctors. Arrived at the doctors and I, I remember the two receptionists were talking about something has happened in America and they, they didn't really know what it was, and I, I didn't kind of fill them in, but I just thought, oh my God, it's so much worse than than you're speculating. And I went to the doctor, mm. had the injections, had this polio thing where they put it in your mouth, and it, it tastes foul, I remember that vividly. Came home and, and then watched the remainder of it on TV, was glued to the television. I saw the second tower go down live on TV, on the news coverage, which was just truly shocking. And, um, yeah, just, just sat there and, um, watched it glued to the screen for hours and hours. None of us knew really what, what it was about. We didn't know who was responsible. And, uh, but very early on, they, they'd said it was likely to be a terrorist attack. So people were, were genuinely talking about the start of World War Three. And that's what we thought we were on the brink of. Yeah. So, yeah, I vivid, felt very memory. old the other day at work because we were talking about something and one of the younger guys at work said, um, oh, 9-11, I've heard of that, but I don't know anything about it. And we all kind of stopped and looked at him. We were like, what? And he went, well, I'm not being funny. I was three months old at that point. Why would I? And I was like, oh, my God, you're so young. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. But equally, it's still a, a huge moment in history that you would think people would grow up hearing about and having an understanding of. But yeah, I suppose it was big, you know, huge to us in particular because we witnessed it firsthand pretty much via news Mm -hmm. coverage. But yeah, it was kind of live. Um, I did just have, I did just have a little Google, um, just in case anybody would like to read that book I mentioned, because genuinely it's one of those books that has stuck with me. It's by a guy called Richard. I guess his mate, his surname must be Picciotto because his nickname is Pitch, so that would make sense, but P-I-C-C-I-O-T-T-O, and it's called Last Man Down, The Fireman's Story. So if anybody is interested, I would definitely recommend that. In the months that followed 9-11, the residents of Washington tried their best to heal their wounds and return to some semblance of normality. 
National security measures had been so heavily ramped up that it felt almost inconceivable that the USA could be attacked so brutally ever again. Slowly but surely, a year after the traumatic events of 9-11, normality was returning to Washington. However, that all changed in dramatic fashion in the autumn of that year, 2002, when the entire district was suddenly gripped by yet another appalling wave of fear and violence. As the police launched the biggest criminal manhunt that the USA had ever seen, Washington DC's 5.3 million inhabitants were forced to lie low, essentially prisoners in their own houses, in a desperate bid to protect themselves from a deadly and relentless serial killer. And it's one of those horrible things of how far can you go with not just living your normal life, like you have to still go to school and work and stuff like that, even if you're terrified. And for a short time maybe you could stay in but maybe you still couldn't and oh it's just a horrific decision to have to think about and to make isn't it yeah the world still turns and things need to get done and people need to be fed and yeah it unfortunately for some people that there's only so much you can do and also I think in this country in particular in in the UK we're a bit more wary of what other people might think and there's that whole stiff upper lip thing so it's almost like keep calm and carry on here so I I kind of wonder how different it would have been here because DC essentially did go into a bit of a lockdown around this time I'm not sure the same would have happened in in the UK um maybe they did didn't they they put like a a lockdown around the town but yeah I mean it's so true this this British thing of no we keep calm and carry on sort of thing and we still go and do what we need to do in the face of danger. But I think we're kind of like nowadays, I think the generations now are a lot less like that. Whereas back in the day, they'd go off and do what they need to do during the blitz or something crazy. Maybe yeah. we, we don't see that as much now. October the 2nd in 2002 had begun as any other relatively normal day. The skies over Washington DC were blue and clear and the warmth of summer was gradually giving way to the chill of autumn. The dark and traumatic memories of 9-11 still lingered in the minds of many and the media was reporting on the rapidly growing tensions in the Middle East, which made the prospect of a US military-led retaliation against Al-Qaeda pretty much inevitable at this point. Elsewhere, a large storm was brewing on the Gulf of Mexico. Other than that, though, there wasn't much going on. Around 10 miles north of Washington, in Wheaton, Maryland, a 59-year-old man named James Martin pulled into the car park of a large food court. It was late afternoon and Mr Martin wanted to buy groceries on his way home from work for his wife and young son. As he got out of his car and casually walked through the busy car park in the direction of the store, a single loud gunshot-like crack rang out. The sound was loud and unsettling. The USA has never been a stranger to gun violence and the sound of gunfire has become increasingly recognisable to most. Upon hearing that noise that day, several bystanders flinched and instinctively took cover. One shopper was in the car park with her five-year-old son and took cover behind a parked car. However, when she stood up again a few moments later, she noticed James Martin was lying face down and unconscious on the tarmac and he appeared to be bleeding. She dialed 999 to report the incident. Within minutes, the police and an ambulance had arrived at the scene and began to assist Mr Martin. However, there was nothing they could do. He'd been killed instantly. It's just like, I can't, there's just one shot rings out and then 
the police and the ambulance turn up, there's, he's literally been killed instantly. You just would be thinking, like, what on earth was this? Just going about his normal business, finished work, stopping by the grocery store, and, yeah, that happens in an instant. James Martin's cause of death was a gaping gunshot wound to his back, which had travelled clean through his body and emerged out of his chest. According to the police, such a catastrophic injury could have only been inflicted with the use of an exceptionally powerful firearm. The police scoured the murder scene for clues, but found none. They questioned witnesses and tried to identify possible suspects, but came up with nothing. Nobody had seen the shooter, and there was no evidence that a gun had even been fired in the car park. By all accounts, Mr Martin had been alive, a single shot had rung out, and then he was dead. The murder had all the hallmarks of a professional assassination. However, the victim, Mr Martin, was just a regular, unassuming programme analyst from a local tech firm. According to his friends and family, he was a peaceful-natured family man who had no enemies and was well-loved by everyone he knew. The investigation into Mr Martin's death was simple yet infuriating. The incident was bizarre and the police had a multitude of questions but not a single answer. That night, as detectives worked tirelessly to come up with an answer to the mystery surrounding his death, they explored the possibility that the murder might be linked to an incident that had taken place earlier that morning, when a single shot had been fired through the window of an arts and crafts store, which narrowly missed hitting the cashier. The ballistics report strongly indicated that the bullet had been fired from a high-powered gun, most likely a sniper rifle. The revelation left the detectives scratching their heads, but it also stirred in them a deep sense of dread as to what was to come from it. Then, early the following day, on October the 3rd of 2002, as Washington DC police detectives were still trying to wrap their heads around the bizarre events of the day before, all hell broke loose. At around 7.40am, the police responded to a possible shooting in Rockville a suburb of Maryland that sits around six miles from where James Martin had been killed the previous day. James L. Buchanan, a 39-year-old landscaper who was better known to his friends and family as Sonny, had been fatally shot whilst mowing a lawn outside of an office block. Witnesses described hearing a single loud gunshot-like noise, then seeing Sonny fall dead. At first it was thought that his lawnmower had malfunctioned and fatally injured him. It was only when medics arrived that it was discovered that Sonny had sustained a fatal gunshot wound to his torso. You would, wouldn't you? You'd hear that noise, you'd see him drop and you'd kind of think like, maybe like an electric shock or something. You just wouldn't... Like, if I hear a loud bang, maybe it's different if you live in America, but if I hear a loud bang, I assume a backfire or something's dropped. I just... You just wouldn't expect this, and he's just mowing a lawn. You just think it was a freak accident that maybe, yeah, the lawnmower's done something. He, yeah, there's a, you know, it's a heavy piece of equipment, isn't it? Machinery. And then he's kind of on the floor. So, yeah, you're going to put two and two together and definitely come up with that scenario. Once again, there were no clues. Nobody had seen the shooter, and there was no clear motive for this killing. The police knew immediately that it was the same killer. The fact that he'd struck again after just one day was shocking. However, their nightmare was only just beginning. Less than 30 minutes later, at 8.07am, around five miles away from the scene of Sonny's murder, another single gunshot rang out. This time at a local petrol station. 54-year-old Prem Kumar Wallaker, a part-time cab driver, was killed while pumping gas into his cab. 
The deadly power of the rifle literally blew a hole in Prem Kumar's torso. Astonishingly, he somehow managed to stagger a few metres and ask a witness for help before he collapsed and quickly died at the scene, which is just unreal because this would have been a, a hole the size of the palm of your hand blown into his torso. Emergency responders raced to the scene, but before they could even reach Prem Kumar, the killer had struck again. Sarah Ramos, a 34-year-old El Salvadorian immigrant, was shot and killed as she stood outside a post office in the nearby Silver Springs suburb in Maryland. The bullet struck Ms Ramos in the head and killed her instantly. Nobody saw the shooter. It was so random and happened so quickly that witnesses at first assumed that Ms Ramos had taken her own life by shooting herself. However, when medics arrived, they realised that she'd been fatally shot by a high-caliber rifle. I think spree killers just are so, so terrifying because a serial killer is scary and absolutely terrifying. And you, But the police have got time between to almost try and plot what they um, can kind of predict that the killer's going to do. But a spree killer is just so much devastation in such a short space of time. I cannot imagine the police at this point law enforcement trying to investigate this and stuff's happening within seconds of them finding out about something else. Normally with a serial killer there's there's a period of rest isn't there in between kills and it does it just buys the police investigation time to build a profile and gather evidence and try and get one step ahead but yeah you're so Mm. right with spree killers it's just deranged killing and this does remind me a little bit of Joanna Dennehy uh, who we covered very early on in the show. Yeah, one of our first ever episodes, wasn't it? Wasn't it? And um, I think she killed four men over a very short period of time. And that was just this kind of mindless, senseless, illogical pattern of just devastating violence that she perpetrated around the country. And yeah, it's so hard to uh, put two and two together and, and make four and get a step ahead. So... So yeah, very similar scenario here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. The police later found the bullet that had killed Sarah Ramos. It was a two two three caliber round that had been fired from a large and powerful firearm, possibly a Bushmaster, which is an extremely high-powered hunting rifle, and it's designed to cause catastrophic injury to bring down big game animals. So we're talking like lions and leopards, animals that weigh 30, 40 stone. And when fired, the bullets propel an ultra-high velocity and make a spiralling-like movement as they travel. And that causes absolute carnage and destruction to the target's internal organs as it passes through flesh and bone. And by using such a deadly rifle to shoot humans, there was zero doubt that the killer fully intended to kill his victims. This was almost an element of overkill. A witness from the Ramos scene came forward to say that they had observed a white panel van speeding away from the scene after the shooting, but they'd not seen who was driving it. By now, three people had been killed in a single morning and the killer was so frenzied that the police were struggling to keep up. 
A killing spree was taking place right before their eyes, but the killer was invisible, mobile and undetectable. The police could only hope that the killer would grow tired soon and end his deadly assault on the public. However, as the day wore on, the horror only continued. Less than an hour after Sarah Ramos was killed, 25-year-old Lorianne Lewis Rivera was shot in almost identical fashion as she vacuumed her car at a petrol station in Kensington in Maryland. Like the other victims of that tragic day, she died at the scene. Several hours passed by without incident and the police began to hope that their living nightmare of a day was finally coming to an end. However, this was not to be the case. The killer had room in his schedule to take out one more unfortunate victim before midnight struck. At 9.20 that evening, the killer made his way into the downtown area of Washington DC and shot a 72-year-old Haitian immigrant named Pascal Charlotte as he was walking on Georgia Avenue. Witnesses heard the shot but didn't see any sign of the shooter. Mr Charlotte was shot in the chest. He survived the initial gunshot and was rushed to hospital, but sadly succumbed to his injuries less than an hour later. To this day, October 3rd, 2002, remains the deadliest day in Washington's criminal history. The killings had all occurred within a 25-mile radius of one another, and had caused Washington's annual murder rate to rise by an astonishing 30% in just 24 hours. How crazy is that? Like you said before, the the crime rate was like mid, kind of midpoint of America. So for 30% yeah. in just 24 hours, that is a crazy statistic. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. All told, five people have been randomly shot dead as they went about their business. All had been shot at extra long range by an unseen assailant. The bullet fragments matched perfectly and the unique modus operandi of the killer made the incidents undeniably related to one another. By now the true horror of what was happening began to dawn on the police. They were dealing with a serial killer who had access to a high-powered sniper rifle, a man who was driving around the district and taking shots at random members of the public. And he was an excellent shot too. That day, his kill rate had been 100%. Forensic scientists examined the wounds of each victim, cross-referencing the position of the bullet's entry point in relation to the direction they had been facing when they'd been hit. From this analysis, they determined that the killer had not taken the shot from the top of a tall building, as was first thought, but had in fact taken all of his shots from ground level. And this revelation helped birth the theory that the killer was shooting stealthily from inside his vehicle. A regular car would have been too exposed and wouldn't have allowed the killer the proper positioning required to hit his targets with such accuracy. The killer, it was theorised, would need a much larger vehicle with much more space on the interior. Suddenly, the earlier witness that observed a white panel van dashing from the scene of the Ramos murder seemed much more credible. As the day came to an end, the police prayed for a better tomorrow. They prayed that the killer would pack up his gear and go home and that his killing spree would be over. Their prayers went unanswered. By the following morning, the media had gotten hold of the explosive story and when the word got out, of course panic ensued. Once again, fear and chaos reigned supreme in Washington, D.C. Parents refused to send their kids to school, the elderly refused to leave their homes, Dozens of businesses refused to open and petrol stations began to put up non-transparent plastic sheeting around the perimeter of the forecourt in order to obscure the view from any would-be snipers. 
the entire district was, by all intents and purposes, on lockdown. But as we said earlier, not everybody can go into lockdown. Gas stations need to stay open. Those people need to go to their jobs and work. So yeah, there is only so much. Exactly. And do. I know these people so far have been targeted whilst at a petrol station or at a shop or something. But you just don't know as a nurse or a doctor, for example, that you're not going to get shot walking into a hospital. You just don't know what this person is going to do next. And they're, they're within that sort of, what was it, 25 mile radius? Was that right? But yeah, 25 mile radius. That that's a lot of ground and they're just going here, there, everywhere. You just you just wouldn't know, would you? You just would feel like if you could, if you were lucky enough that you could just stay home, even then you'd be thinking, well, what if they shoot through my window? And you're just going to be thinking, well, when are the police going to catch this guy? Because what do I do? Do I stay a prisoner in my own home for months until they're caught yeah. or forever if they're never caught? If they're caught. never caught and then that one day you go out... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And the random nature of these killings is what really caused panic because there was no profile of victim. Anybody could be a victim of the Washington Sun. And it's that thing that you always find so, so terrifying that at random, just a random victim or just someone who wants to kill. Yeah, for the hell of it. A press conference was held in which the chief of police addressed the public and tried to convey a sense of order out of the chaos. He urged the public to remain vigilant, but otherwise to stay calm and carry on as normal. The police put at roadblocks and began searching vehicles at random, paying special attention to white panel vans, hoping to strike Lucky and discover the sniper fully equipped and on the move. They hoped that their visible search efforts, coupled with the mass media attention surrounding the case, would be enough to spook the sniper into stopping his killing spree. But they were wrong. The killer simply changed tactics and travelled to the southern suburbs of Washington, where there were less roadblocks and less police hunting him. At around 2.30pm on October the 4th in 2002, 43-year-old Caroline Sewell was shot in the chest in the parking lot of a shopping mall as she was loading purchases into her minivan. She was discovered lying on the tarmac, seriously injured but still alive. She was rushed to hospital where she spent the next 10 days in critical condition in the ICU. Miraculously, given the seriousness of her injuries, she became the first victim of the DC sniper to survive an attack. For the rest of that day, the police braced themselves for more carnage. However, despite their worst fears, Ms Sewell was the only victim of the sniper that day. It's thought that the increased police presence in the suburbs was preventing the sniper from moving around as freely as before, and he had therefore been forced to scale back his attack. The following day, on October 5th, the police stood anxiously on standby, waiting for more killings. They waited all day, but nothing happened. Not a single sniper killing took place that day, and a few of the detectives dared to hope that the killer's bloodlust may have finally been satiated, for now at least. See, whereas I would be worrying, rather than his blood loss has has kind of been fulfilled, I'd be thinking we've really pissed him off now because he's like a caged animal. And I think I'd be more worrying that this is going to escalate rather than maybe it's over. But I don't know if that's just me being really cynical. What about you? I, I'd be... I'd be thinking the same. I think I'd be thinking mm. they're probably changing their plans a bit now and maybe they're going to target a different state. Uh, well, a different city, that would be my concern. And then we're really going to be off their case, you know, and handed over to another jurisdiction. It's difficult then. 
This was, however, an opportunity for the police to get ahead of him. They knew it would only be a matter of time before he decided to kill again, and there was no time to lose. They needed to catch him before that happened. They needed to correctly anticipate where and when he would strike next and be right there waiting for him. Detectives tried their best to put together a profile of this individual, but this proved to be extremely difficult. What was most troubling to the police detectives working the case was the way in which this sniper was simply refusing to conform to the established methods and behaviours of other serial killers that had come before him. Now, typically, a serial killer almost always has a type, a specific demographic which he or she repeatedly looks to when selecting their next victim. Children, middle-class white women and gay men, for example, tend to be popular targets due to their inherent vulnerabilities. Serial killers also tend to strike at a certain time of the day, usually at night when they're not at work or at a time of the day when their preferred victim is seen to be vulnerable. Their type of behaviour is usually what allows detectives to build up a criminal profile of them and is often what leads to their eventual capture and arrest. However, this time things were different. The Washington DC sniper simply didn't give a fuck. His victims were white, black, male, female, young, old. It didn't matter to him in the slightest. He didn't have a type. He was totally indiscriminate and killed anyone who was unlucky enough to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. The killings took place at varying times throughout the day and night. He was completely unhinged and this made him far more deadly and significantly harder to catch than the average serial killer. The logistics of the killings were also shrouded in confusion. How was a killer able to hide so efficiently during each shooting? All the murders had occurred in well-built, highly populated areas with no woodland or tree coverage around, but not a single witness had come forward to say they'd seen the killer take the shot. After each attack, the killer had travelled immediately to his next spot without hesitation, so there was no doubt he had a car or a van at his disposal. But how was he so easily able to indiscriminately kill his victims repeatedly without even coming close to being seen by anyone? And what was the killer's motive for this violence? Several theories were put forward that reflected the politically tumultuous state of national security in the USA at the time. Terrorism being the most popular suggestion, with the USA's impending military action against Afghanistan being the most likely motivator. It took me about eight takes, everybody, for that. Military task force action. Couldn't say those I just got rid of that, but in the end, I just didn't say them. This led to an even more paranoid theory being put forward that the killer wasn't acting alone, but was instead part of a team of terrorists that was launching its latest attack on the US. And I remember this at the time. This was a really credible theory because this is barely a year after 9-11, the, the whole world, and particularly America, is on high alert. They're about to go to war with Afghan, with, with Iraq and Afghanistan um, against al-Qaeda. And terrorism was starting to take lots of different forms. And there were splinter cells of al-Qaeda. And it was highly likely that, yeah, this could have been a splinter cell that was perpetrating a deadly terrorist attack in a really different way, a way we'd not seen before. Normally it's a a mass murder, so the Manchester Arena bombing, for example, 9-11, for example. But yeah, there was this credible theory that this is just, this is how terrorism looks now in 2002, post 9-11. So even the CIA, 
began to investigate that theory and a tip hotline was promptly set up and almost immediately flooded with calls by thousands upon thousands of people. Of course, a majority of callers were scared locals reporting the suspicious activities of friends, colleagues or neighbours. Others called in and insisted that they felt sure they knew who the killer was, only to then offer up useless leads. Oh, I mean, it's so tricky, isn't it? Because tip lines are so helpful in a lot of ways, but you are going to get those, oh, I know who the killer is because my neighbour once put the bins out on the wrong night, so he must be a psychopath like it's just not helpful but you need it because one in every few I don't know probably hundred calls but there will be some that are genuinely really helpful information absolutely and it is it's really difficult because you've got to do something but quickly the investigators get bombarded with with leads with information and it's really hard to categorize that properly and prioritise relevant leads so yeah and of course there were also um, deranged individuals that were calling up pretending to be the killer making demands um, saying that they they will stop the killing spree if they have 10 million dollars wired to them for example Um, all lines of inquiry were followed up but the police got no closer to catching their man as a result of this tip line After some time, the police were forced to face the reality that they just didn't have much to go on. They had no forensic clues, no verified description of the man they were hunting, and no idea how the killer was able to vanish into thin air after each murder. All they could do was try their best to weather the storm, further increase the police presence on the streets, and wait for the sniper to either give up or make a mistake. Two days later, on October the 7th, the killer took his murderous campaign to the next level by doing the unthinkable. He targeted a child. At around 8am, 13-year-old Iran Brown was dropped off outside Benjamin Tasker Middle School in Bowie, Maryland, by his aunt. On the way to school that day, Iran and his aunt had been listening to radio news reports about the latest on the DC sniper attacks. Iran got out of the car and said goodbye before closing the door. As his aunt began to drive away, she heard a loud gunshot ring out. She later described it as sounding like a grenade going off. She knew instantly what had happened. She turned around and to her absolute horror saw Iran lying on the ground, bleeding heavily from a huge gunshot wound to his stomach. Iran's aunt was an ER nurse and she put him in her car and drove him to the nearby Bowie Health Centre emergency room, where medics spent hours battling to save the young boy's life. And it was touch and go, but in the end, the best efforts of the medical staff paid off and they were able to get Iran into a stable but critical condition. He ultimately became the second sniper victim to survive the attack. Speaking to the media years later, he described how it felt in the moments after being shot by the sniper's powerful rifle. He said, I was gasping for air, I was turning pale, I was losing so much blood, I had to roll the window down to help me breathe. It was a tense moment. I truly thought I was going to die, but I remember praying and just essentially preparing to pass away. I was telling my aunt how much I loved her. And it's so upsetting to read that. Yeah, who has resigned himself to the fact that he's going to die right there in the back of his aunt's car. It's just, yeah, I mean, for an adult to go through that is, of course, one thing. But a 13-year-old boy, it's... 
I just can't imagine how he was truly feeling. It's just weird as well. There's not many children that age that would experience anything like that. No, but also to be able to articulate it afterwards as well, to be able to relive it by talking about it is very incredible. Yeah. The news of young Iran shooting took the public's sense of fear to alarming new levels. Now everyone hid indoors and Washington DC resembled a ghost town. Nobody felt safe. Eight people had been killed or maimed since the sniper had begun his shooting spree. Even children were now potential targets. Schools were forced to close and sporting events were cancelled. The sense of terror throughout the district was palpable and the pressure on the police to catch the killer was at an all-time high. The police did a deep search of the crime scene at Benjamin Tasker Middle School and it was here where they found something deeply troubling. It appeared that the killer was now playing with them and had intentionally left something behind for them to find. A single tarot card was discovered at the spot where investigators believed the sniper had taken his shot from. The card had a white horse and a black skeleton on the front and the word death centred on the bottom margin. On the top margin in blue ink was a handwritten phrase that read, Call me God. On the back was another handwritten note which read, For you, Mr Police, did not release to the press. This person is just trying to be, like, creepy and edgy and horrific because they've gone, Oh, this is the tarot card of death. And it's just like... I know, it's it's so fucking I just think it's so pathetic, isn't it? Yeah. However, I do understand why the killer has done it because it's a bit like, well, for the killer, the killer thinks they are achieving something amazing in what they've done. And like anybody, when you achieve something super, you need other people to know about it and you kind of need them to know you. Yeah. Otherwise, it's like it's not really happened or that you're not the perpetrator of that amazing thing. So to make it feel real the killer has got to push those boundaries. I do understand it. So this tarot card was a compelling lead. In the immediate aftermath of the shooting, the crime scene and the surrounding area had been sealed off pretty much straight away, which made it almost impossible for the card to have been left there afterwards by a prankster. This was the real deal, a verified note that had been intentionally left behind for the police to find. The item was examined for fingerprints and DNA, but of course nothing was found. The chief of police decided to take the sniper's warning seriously and forbade any of his officers from speaking to the media about this tarot card. However, after less than a day, the information was leaked to the press anyway, and the detail of the police's most compelling clue was reported around the world. Oh, that's so annoying, isn't it? So So frustrating. frustrating. There are always leaks within the police, and I actually don't blame... I don't blame the police, I blame the media, because they are taking advantage of people's vulnerability in a way this is me being very lenient on the police but they're offering huge sums of money and that's difficult for lower ranking officers who were earning 30 grand a year struggling to get by potentially it's difficult for them to say no to that so the media know that and if they stop doing that or we kind of found out about it and took serious action against them it wouldn't happen as much as it does The discovery of the tarot card with the handwritten note on it did help detectives put together a more accurate psychological profile of the killer. Criminal psychologists theorise that the killer may exhibit signs of having narcissistic personality disorder, which is a proper term for someone who has a god complex. That's what people use to kind of say, oh they've got a god complex, and oftentimes what they're describing is someone who displays characteristics 
similar to those you would find with narcissistic personality disorder. NPD is a rare mental disorder characterised by an inflated sense of self-importance, a sense of entitlement, a deep need for admiration and also an alarming lack of empathy for other people. This heightened display of arrogance and superiority together with the sniper's shooting skills prompted them to suggest that he may be a military man, either an actively serving soldier gone AWOL or an army veteran with extensive combat experience. Two days later, on October the 9th, the sniper continued his killing spree and picked off his next victim. Dean Harold Myers, a 53-year-old civil servant and a veteran of the Vietnam War, was filling his car with petrol at a station in Manassas, Virginia, when he was suddenly shot through the skull and instantly killed. And this is graphic now, because the sheer power of that gunshot literally blew his head off on that forecourt. Oh my goodness. And... The only saving grace, of course, is that he wouldn't have known what what had happened, wouldn't have felt a thing because that would have been instantaneous, but that bullet beheaded him. Isn't that just shocking? That just shows how powerful this rifle is, and this this is from quite a range, quite a distance. This time, the police were prepared. They'd formulated an aggressive new strategy for dealing with the sniper. As soon as the first emergency call came in regarding Mr Myers' killing, the police sprung into action within seconds and hastily set up rolling checkpoints on every single road in a 2, 5 and 10 mile circular radius of the crime scene. They anticipated that the killer would try to bolt away from the area as soon as he'd pulled the trigger. If they reacted fast enough, they might just be able to box him in before he got clear of them and escaped again. So they executed the strategy to the letter. But to their endless frustration, the killer still managed to give them the slip. And I think they just missed him, which is just mind-bendingly frustrating. The failure to capture the sniper would result in another murder two days later, on October the 11th. Kenneth Bridges, a 53-year-old entrepreneur from Philadelphia, was shot in the chest and killed instantly as he filled up with petrol at a station near Fredericksburg, Virginia. Police once again sprang into action and set up their rolling roadblocks as quickly as possible, but once again the sniper escaped. By now, terror, distress and alarm in the Washington district was at an all-time high. The public was so scared that even the major highways at morning rush hour were now completely deserted, as most people felt too afraid to even step out of their front doors. Can you believe that level of terror? And I would definitely be one of those people who would just not leave the house. I would be grateful, I think, that my employer would kind of understand that and I'd probably have to have taken it as unpaid or something, but I feel like they would appreciate that. I think I'm quite lucky in that I work in that sort of place, but there's a lot of people who would have no choice whatsoever. Yeah, it's it it just doesn't bear thinking about the the sheer terror within that whole district. So we we're going to leave part one there and pick up with part two next week, with, which Bethan is going to dive into for us. We will see you then. Bye.
Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Romball and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.